Hello, everybody. Welcome to Women in the Word. It's great to see you all here today. My name's Amy Foster. I love being with you every week. I love being a part of your teaching team. I don't know where you are in your planning your lives right now, but I'm, I'm planning my summer right now. And um, I have this little throwback to childhood. When I think of summer, all I think of is water. Get thee to some water. If you grow up in Texas as a kid, you know that's what you have to do if you're going to be outside. I grew up spending every weekend in the water of Lake LBJ outside of Austin with my brothers. We love to fish and ski and ride in the boat. But my very favorite thing to do was to get those old, cheap little blow-up rafts and get out on the end of my dock and just float. This was long before I worried about wrinkles or skin cancer or sunscreen or anything like that. I love to close my eyes and feel the ripples and the sway of the water. And if I'd be real still, the fish would come nibble on my fingers and my toes. And I'd do that for a while, but every time I'd open my eyes, to my shock, I had floated down the river. I was no longer at my family's dock. Sometimes I was five or six docks away, and I'd have to hop off that raft and start paddling. And I think I was a pretty lazy teenager because I often thought, I need an anchor for this float. I just need an anchor that I can pitch out here so I can float on the end of my dock. You know, an anchor would do that for me. It would attach itself to the floor of the lake and it would hold me tight in one spot. It would prevent me from drifting off down the lake. It would keep me in a fixed and certain position. And I knew enough from being on small fishing boats and sailboats to also know an anchor would offer protection. It will keep your boat from drifting into those shallows where the boat's gonna be damaged. It keeps you from being knocked into the shoreline. An anchor provides security, stability, and safety, kind of like God, right? We know um, an anchor actually became a Christian symbol. You'll see it in lots of stained glass and lots of Christian art. Um, in the New Testament, the anchor was adopted as a symbol of hope. If you're familiar with the writings of Peter and Paul, they will reference the anchor of hope that's available to us when we follow Jesus, when we're Christ followers. So there is this ethic of hope that we see all through the New Testament that refers to this anchor, but there's an ethic of hope in the Old Testament also, and it's never more clearly displayed than right here in Psalm 130 that we're gonna look at today. Psalm 130 is a psalm of hope. But before we start studying it, I think we need to define our terms um, because this is one of those instances when you know, God's told us we have to transform our minds, we have to think like he does, and hope is one of the places we have to learn to think like God. If you were to open up your Webster's Dictionary and look up hope, here's what it would say, to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to happen, to want something to be true. So that's why we say, I hope for nice weather on Easter. It's why I hoped for snow every Christmas morning of my childhood in Texas. That never happened. It's why we say, I hope for health. I hope for happiness and success for my family. Those are good things. We want them to happen in the future, but they are uncertain things. We don't know if they'll actually happen or not. We have very little control over that outcome. So those are precarious things. They're uncertain. And those hopes can be disappointed and they can be crushed. It is not so with biblical hope. 
Biblical hope is something totally different. I've included this on your notes for today because I want you to remember this definition. God's definition of hope is a confident, certain, alert expectation of all that God has promised. Biblical hope expects God to do exactly as he says he will do. Biblical hope is not precarious, it can't be crushed, it's strong, it's certain, and its strength is totally rooted in the character of God. It's rooted in the faithfulness of God. So we're gonna look at the hope that's expressed in Psalm 130 today. I want you to know a few things about this psalm. It is another one of our psalms of ascents. And so remember, these were the pilgrim songs. These were the prayers and the songs that they would recite and sing as they were making their way to Jerusalem, approaching the presence of God. But these are also uh, psalms of ascent that we can use today. We find spiritual disciplines for us, for modern day pilgrims, things that we can do as we're taking our next steps upward to God. Psalm 130 is also a penitential psalm. You may remember Deb shared with us about penitential psalms. These are the songs or the prayers that express pain, sorrow, regret for having done wrong, having messed up. They recognize the presence of sin is the source of all human suffering. So we clearly see the penitential aspect of this psalm in the very first opening words. Begin reading with me, Psalm 130 and verse one. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And so this psalm begins, this psalm of hope, it begins with a desperate beggar's petition. And so we learn right away desperation is the first step towards finding hope. We don't know exactly what the circumstances are for this psalmist. We don't know who he is, but it certainly appears that the nation of Israel is experiencing some kind of spiritual calamity as a result of their sin and disobedience to God. And we know that from that term right there at the beginning, out of the depths. So depths, that's the opposite of heights, right? Depths means a picture of the bottom. It suggests um, pain, sorrow, being brought low from sin and suffering. The author is expressing this emotion of sinking to the very bottom of the deepest, darkest waters. And this is his despairing cry of distress. Now, it's a really short cry there, but I noticed three very clear things about his cry. The first is it's a fervent cry. If you look closely at his words, he repeats it three times. I call out, hear me, hear me, Lord, listen to my plea. He is definitely fervently crying out to God. There's an urgency and a persistency in his plea, and the message translation actually ramps that up to end with, listen hard, God, exclamation point. It's definitely urgent and persistent and a fervent cry to God. It's also a reverent cry. You probably noticed there are eight references to God in these short eight verses in this psalm. He's always referenced as Lord. Um, but you may have also noticed that the type changes in your Bible. Sometimes it's Lord, all caps. Sometimes it's Lord, just with a capital R. And what that's, what's that is pointing out to you, they are using the different names for God there. All, all names attached to God, but names that emphasize different aspects of his holy character. So he begins, I cry to you, Lord. And that's Lord with all caps. And that means the name Jehovah. 
And so we know that the name Jehovah, that's really describing the self-existent, eternal, I am God, the God who has always existed, the God who always will be. And then immediately he switches to the next version of Lord that is in all caps, and that's from the name Adonai. And Adonai is also a reference to God, but it's focused on God as the, the ruler over all of the earth, the ruler over subjects. It emphasizes God's majesty and the honor and deference due him. I think when we hear the term Adonai, it helps us understand our relationship to this ruler. It helps us understand that we are the subjects who bow before him. That's how he's describing God here. And so I think clearly he's showing his belief that only God can pull him up from these depths. And so he cries out reverently to the Lord. It's also a very direct and succinct cry. He's begging for mercy. That's what he says there. I'm crying to you for mercy. And we, we understand what mercy is. It's, it's not receiving what we deserve. It's not suffering the penalty that is due us. And so what we can learn from these first few verses, a need for mercy is the psalmist's biggest need. A need for mercy is the nation of Israel's biggest need. And we know a need for mercy from God is mankind's biggest and greatest need. Because all of mankind, apart from God, we are sinking to the depths of our sin. We are drowning under the guilt of our sin. And every single person on this creation needs God's rescue more than anything else. He goes on then, and he shifts his focus from his desperate position to God's faithful character. Read with me in verse three. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so he goes back to that Lord, all caps, Remember, the, the self-existent, always present, all-seeing, all-knowing God. If that God who sees everything kept a record of every one of our sins, who could stand? Your Bible might use the word sin or it might use the word iniquity. It means the same thing. It's any offense against a holy God. Anything that doesn't measure up to God's perfect and holy standard. He is perfect purity and we are not. So when we act impurely, it's an offense against him. It's an offense against his standard. Every single time we fall short, we fail God. So he's holy and he's just. His justice means something a little different than his holiness. That means he must always act with perfect justice. That means God can't look away from our sin. He can't wink his eye and pretend like he didn't see it. Perfect justice says sin and offense must always be penalized. Sin and offense must always be paid for. So the psalmist asks the question, who can stand before a God this holy, this perfect, this just? And he doesn't give us the answer because we know it. No one, no one can stand in front of that God. Listen to these words from Malachi 3.2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. That means in God's presence, he has to burn away everything that is impure. So as you think about the reality of God's holiness and justice, perhaps you feel yourself sinking to the depths 
just like our psalmist, feeling the weight of sin's reality. Fortunately, those words are followed with, but, but it isn't just God's holiness and his justice. With God, there's forgiveness. He is also merciful. And we know that God's mercy is what brings his pardon and his forgiveness, and his mercy is what ultimately brings hope into all of our lives. Look at God's words in Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Three times the writer has expressed his desperate, needy position, but now he anchors himself quite confidently on the character of God, the steadfast character of a God who is holy and merciful, a God who exercises justice and mercy. This is a God who desires to forgive. And so what we find in these short verses is a perfect pattern for us. We can go to God in repentance when we experience the depths of our sin. We can be honest about our sin, and we don't have to linger there. Then we shift our gaze to God's perfect character, his character which is holy and just and also merciful and gracious. So as we talk about forgiveness today, I feel the need to give you a a pretty strong admonition or, or warning. Don't take God's forgiveness lightly. We simply can't. I want you to always remember what you know about God's justice. Forgiveness is not leniency. Forgiveness is not God turning a blind eye. Forgiveness is not God ignoring your sin. For God to forgive because of his justice, a worthy substitution must be offered. The most holy demands of a just God must be satisfied all the time. And we know that the divine penalty for sin would be borne in the future by Jesus. For the nation of Israel, in the meantime, they would follow God's commands and they would offer an animal. They would sacrifice its life and spill its blood as a substitution. And that blood, that offering, would cover their sins until the time in the distant future when Jesus' blood would be sacrificed and provide the perfect forever substitution for sins. Jesus' blood would satisfy the holy demands. So as we talk about forgiveness, please remember with me, forgiveness is not cheap. It cost God dearly. It's not the friendly state trooper smiling at you and saying, we're just gonna call this a warning this time. And it's not the doting father who shakes his head with a smile and says, boys will be boys. That's not what happens when God forgives. It cost him a great deal to forgive our sins. So what I find in these first few verses You can't find hope if you don't experience the depths. That's the place where hope begins, in the depths. If you don't have a painful sense of your sin, a painful awareness that your sin separates you from God, you do not turn your eyes to God and look to him to save you and forgive you. And gratefully, God has given us these souls that recognize the presence of sin. He's given us souls that are uncomfortable with our sin. He's given us souls that recognize when we are far from God. You know, here at Christ Chapel, we recently heard from a man who leads um, an amazing ministry in India to the people of India, and he spoke to all of us about the plight of the Indian people, and what he didn't say was their plight is poor education or the caste system or human rights problems. He said something we all know, the plight of the Indian people is they have a sin problem. 
They are separated from God. And we know that that's true for all of us. I'm going to share some pictures that he shared with us. I want to warn you before, they, before you look at them, they can be a little disturbing. These are images of Indian people, pilgrims, going to various shrines, to various gods within their, their country, and they're using those ropes to injure themselves in order to pay for them their sins. They're very aware that their sins separate them from the gods. They're desperately experiencing the depths. They're desperately trying to work out their own redemption. And we see in those pictures, God puts something in our soul that recognizes our sin and longs to be released from the weight of our sin. But we've done an interesting thing here in the West in the last century or so. We've learned to ignore that. We've learned to ignore the sense of sin that is in our soul. We've learned to um, rationalize it away intellectually. We decide we're all basically good. And that behavior that others might categorize as sinful, oh, no, no, that's just relative to your circumstances. We have learned to numb ourselves to the reality of sin is our biggest problem. And when we do that, we push ourselves far away from the possibility of ever experiencing hope. I think there's a great danger for us in the Western world that doesn't yet exist for the people in India because they are aware of their sin. If we don't recognize the depths, we will never cry out to God and we will never find hope. So my warning to you is do not sugarcoat your sin. Don't do it in your life. Don't do it in others' lives either. It's a necessary thing to recognize if we want to find hope. And when we cry out to God, what we're doing is we're taking that big, deep, dark need and we're immersing it in the big, beautiful character of our gracious God. That's what we're doing and we know that God offers forgiveness and pardon. It won't come from those shrines in India and those false gods. It only comes from God who is merciful. But we learn here in this psalm, God's mercy and his forgiveness is for a very specific purpose and I have to remind myself often the purpose isn't me. The purpose isn't me. The end game of God's forgiveness is not to make my life comfortable and is not to make me rest at ease. And it's not you either. We are profound, uh, blessed beneficiaries of his forgiveness, but it's not about us. Look at Isaiah 43, 25. This is God speaking. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The end goal of God's forgiveness is that we would fear him. That's exactly what this psalm tells us, that we would fear God, that we would live in a way that doesn't point to our comfort, but we would live in a way that points to our great God, who's holy and just and merciful, and he forgives. That's how we are to live. Fearing God means recognizing his power and position and then giving him the proper respect and awe and submission that he deserves. So it's this this, uh, reality that we know is true down in our soul, but it doesn't stop there. It flows out from there in the the way that we worship and the way we live. One theologian said, in the Old Testament, fear means trusting God, and fear always shows itself in obedience and in worship. And fear really is the only appropriate response to the magnitude of forgiveness and mercy that God has given us. 
What God wants for the nation of Israel isn't people who would fear him. What God wants for the church, the family of God today, is people who will fear him. That is his purpose. And it's interesting, there's this theme that you see all through the Bible. God rescues people, and then he gives them a new identity. When he rescued Israel out of Egypt, he said, now you're going to be my people, you're going to bear my name, you're going to follow my laws, and you're going to bring my blessing to the world. And when he rescued us after he sent Jesus, he said, now you're a nation of priests, and you're going to proclaim my excellencies to the world. God doesn't do it just to make us comfortable. He does it to give us a new identity, and the identity is always a person, a people who point the world to him. That's why his forgiveness flows to all of us. It's not about us, it's about him. The only reason God's goal can be accomplished, holy fear, is because he extends mercy and forgiveness. Without it, we wouldn't fear him, we would dread him. We would be terrified of him. We couldn't stand before him with fear. We would crumble before him with despair. We can only fear him because of his mercy and his forgiveness. This is hope. This is how we find hope. It rests securely in the character and forgiveness and mercy of God, not in wishing, not in dreaming. Man's biggest problem is always sin, and God's perfect mercy has already taken care of it. It's certain, it's secure, it's forever, it cannot be undone. I believe in these Psalms of Ascents. We find spiritual disciplines, things that we can practice today. And so how do we practice the discipline of hope if we have already discovered it, if we have already accepted Jesus' work on our behalf? Well, we have been forgiven from sin's penalty, but we all still struggle with sin's power, don't we? Sin's power is still prevalent in this world. I think we practice the discipline of hope by being grieved by our ongoing sin and our sin nature, by going to God just like the psalmist with confession, by focusing our prayer on his holiness, his justice, and his mercy. I think when we do that, we take sin seriously. We don't think it's something cheap that costs God nothing. I think when we respond to our sin like that and lean on God and depend on him for forgiveness, we have a new identity. We live like saints. Saints are people who worship and obey and follow God. I think this is a lifelong practice. It is for me, perhaps it is for you too, and it's a practice of integrating all that God is and all that God has done for me with everything that comes out of the rest of my life. That's finding hope, and that's something we can continue to do every day. So that's how we find hope. The psalmist moves on next to give us a description of living with hope. This begins in verse five. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. So I have to remind you, this is a prayer. These are words spoken to God, so this is the part of his prayer that's like his pledge that he's proclaiming to God. I'll wait for you, God. And not just a simple I'll wait, my soul will wait for you, God. That's a beautiful expression. We can't quite get an accurate translation because there's no English equivalent in one word for this idea, this ancient idea of a soul. Soul means the very essence of a person's life. Soul means the inner person, 
not the appearance that is projected on the outside. So he's saying, with all that I am, all my inner person, all that is me, I wait on you, God. I wait for God. Now, waiting on God is not, all right, Lord, you said you'd be here in five minutes. I'm, I'm waiting patiently for you here. That's not waiting on God. Waiting on God is trusting God to accomplish what you cannot. It's trusting God with your life. And that's a life of dependence. Think about it. I can't accomplish my own forgiveness. I can't accomplish my own justification. I can't accomplish my own eternal life or bring the kingdom of God. Only God can do those things, so I wait for God to do those things. Some of those things he tells me he has already accomplished, even though with my eyes I do not see them. The moment I put my faith in Jesus, he tells me forgiveness and justification were accomplished. But I don't see that. I don't have a visual picture of that just yet. Some of the things we're waiting for haven't happened yet. We're waiting for Jesus' second coming. We're waiting for him to set everything right so every part of the creation bows and worships him, his eternal kingdom. We haven't seen those things yet either, so we wait We wait for all of the things that God has promised. Look at Romans 8, verse 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. So a life of hope is a life of waiting, waiting on God. And you know, I think this is hard for us. I think sometimes we refuse to wait for lots of different reasons. Sometimes we refuse to wait because we think we can take care of it better ourselves than letting God take care of it for us. You know, just recently, I purchased some birthday gifts for myself a few weeks ahead of my birthday. (laughs) And then with great generosity in my tone, I went to my husband and told him I had taken care of this for him and he didn't need to worry about my birthday gift. How thoughtful of me. Or maybe I was not waiting. Instead, I was making sure I got the birthday gift that I really wanted. And we can laugh about that when we do that to our husbands, um, but we do that to God. We, We don't necessarily want the direction he's letting our life go in, so we get out ahead of him and we manipulate and we fight and we control and we try to force the life that we want because we don't wanna wait on God. Other times we refuse to wait because we really don't have any hope at all. We don't actually believe that God is going to do what he said. One theologian says, man will not wait for that which he has no hope of receiving. So the way I understand this, if I were to go to a movie theater five minutes before my movie was starting and there was a long line that comes all the way out the door and down the sidewalk to buy tickets, And as I watch that line, it isn't moving. Am I going to wait in that line? It depends on if I believe I'm going to get in that theater or not. If I believe I'm going to get the outcome, I'll wait. I think we sometimes don't believe in all that God has promised, and that's why we refuse to wait. A life of hope is a life of waiting. But the basis of our hope, and this is incredibly important, If you don't remember anything else from today, I want you to remember this. The basis of our hope is the word of God. That's what the psalmist says right here. In his word, I hope. 
I want you to think again about that anchor. If your anchor's just swinging around under your boat or under your blow-up raft and it doesn't attach itself to the bottom of the lake, you have no stability and no security and your anchor is serving no purpose. The anchor must be attached to something. The something for us is God's word. And for me, this is the really tricky part about hope. I think it's a tricky part about hope for many of you also. Our hope can only be attached to what God has promised in his word. And that's the difference between Webster's hope and God's hope. You know, Webster's hope, worldly hope, says you hope for two cars in every driveway, a chicken in every pot, health, wealth, and all your American dreams coming true. God's things... God's words, he doesn't promise those things. Those are good things. It's nothing wrong with wanting those things, but God doesn't promise them. Why do we hold God accountable to promises he has never made to us? Why do we do that? One author says, to hope and believe without God's word is quite simply to test God. Wow. We put ourselves in the place of God We tell him what he needs to provide for us. We tell him what he has promised us. And he gently says, no, I'm telling you what I've promised you. I've put them here in these words, and you can hope in these things because I will be faithful to the things I have promised. Just this week, I was reading some research about mental health, and the research was confirming that when someone experiences a profound disappointment, a hope that isn't realized, a very fast and immediate chemical reaction, a dramatic chemical reaction happens in their brain, and it's the same chemical reactions that are connected to physiological depression and anxiety. I've also read recently, and probably you've read these same things, surveys that help us understand why people who have believed in God can quickly just turn away. And one of the number one reasons people abandon their belief in God is something tragic happens in their life and they had hoped God would prevent it. They had hoped in no illness. They had hoped in happy relationships. They had hoped in financial success. And when that didn't happen, they thought, God can't be trusted. He doesn't honor his promises. Shattered hopes are harmful to human souls. That's true, and God knows it. He doesn't want our hopes shattered, so he tells us in his word which promises are unshatterable, the promises that he has made. And even when we don't see those promises accomplished yet, we can count on them, and we can live our lives waiting and trusting him, and we can attach all our hopes to the things that God has said. You know, this is a lifelong discipline for me because I have had times in my life when I have attached my hope to things that God didn't promise. Good things, but I just kept moving forward thinking I, des- I deserved these good things. I'd planned for them. And what I realized is I'm putting my faith and my trust in things, in plans, in dreams. But my faith and my trust, trust and my hope are supposed to be securely attached to God and the promises he's made in his word. I can remember one time sitting in a Sunday school class and they're teaching about biblical hope and I realized right then, I am counting on things that God hasn't promised. And I was so embarrassed because in the middle of that crowded classroom, I just started crying because I realized I can't put my hope in those things. God hasn't promised that, I have to let go of that. And that was painful and it was scary 
God doesn't want us to be full of fear. The truth is God has taken care of your greatest fear and your greatest need. He secured your eternal future with him through his work that Jesus did on the cross. And he asked you, set your hope on this. Set it on this, not on all these precarious things in the world. So for me, I have to always distinguish between wishing and hoping. And it's okay to wish and it's okay to plan and to have expectations for good things. But I cannot set my hope on them and I cannot test God by acting like he's promised those things for me. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So while we wait, we don't test God, we don't expect him to perform to our words, instead we stick with these words. We study these words, we meditate on these words, we obey these words, we base our life on these words. God's words, because he is faithful and unchanging. And there are great benefits to waiting on God and basing our life on his words. One benefit, our faith is tested and refined. That's what happened to me sitting in that classroom, realizing I'd attached my hope to the wrong things. God is refining me. Our patience is exercised. Our submission is trained. And the ultimate promises of God, as we wait for them, they become so precious and dear to us. We become people who long for our coming king and the kingdom of God more than we long for anything else. God changes our hearts as we wait for him. So we live our lives waiting. We also live our lives watching, watching for God to accomplish his promises. But I love that God doesn't tell us it's this dreary Eeyore kind of watching. It's not. It's hope-filled watching. It's expectant. He describes it, it's like the night watchman waiting for morning. Now, I want you to imagine if you were a night watchman, and if you didn't know for certain that morning was going to come. If you just thought your job was to imagine this long, never-ending night, always scanning the horizon, always hypervigilant, always anxious and worried, watching for dangers and disasters, always feeling the weight of responsibility to keep people safe with no hope of the morning ever coming, no hope of ever being relieved of your duty, no hope of ever resting or sleeping or finding peace. This watchman waiting idea, it's repeated twice, and it does suggest that it's wearying to live under sin's darkness, but there is hope because the morning is coming. The sun will rise. There will be a moment when sin's power is totally vanquished as God has promised. There will be a time when we are completely released from sin's power. We will have freedom and joy Only God can accomplish it for us, but we wait with hope because he's told us it's coming. So we watch and we wait for the presence and reign and return of our king more than a watchman waits for the morning sunrise. We set our eyes on beautiful eternity. This is living with hope. And there are disciplines we have to practice to live with hope. We have to attach ourselves, all our hopes, firmly to the promises God has spoken in his word, not our own promises. And then we also have to detach ourselves and our hopes from all the precarious and uncertain things of the world, the relationships, the people, the health, the circumstance, the money. 
And again, it doesn't mean we don't set goals and make plans and aspire and work towards good things. It means we don't put our faith and hope in receiving all those worldly good things. Our hope rests on God, his plans, his promises. And we look forward with optimism because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. You know, the prophet Isaiah, years before Jesus ever came, he lived with this expectant, watching hope. He wrote his own psalm of praise, looking forward to the great day when the promised Messiah would reign over the earth. Listen to these hope-filled watching words, Isaiah 25, 9. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That is an expectant waiting and watching for God's promises. That's living with hope. Then our psalmist moves next to a quick description of sharing or expressing hope. Look at verse seven. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So after his pledge to literally spend his whole life waiting and watching for God's promises, he turns his prayer outward now. He's thinking of his family, his friends, his neighbors, his whole nation. And he's asking them, encouraging them, hope in the Lord. All of you hope in the Lord. And the best way he knows to encourage them to hope in the Lord is to go straight back to the beautiful character of the Lord. With him there is steadfast love. Steadfast love, he's describing God's nature and his character again. He's describing his mercy, his loving kindness, his faithful love, his loyal love. And that great uh, word there, steadfast, gives us a picture. It's never changing, never altering, never diminishing. This dwells within God as part of his character, and it flows out of him. We can have steadfast confidence because of God's character. And then he also describes God's plentiful redemption. Redemption is literally buying us back. It's purchasing us. It's a substitutionary action that purchases our freedom and purchases our release. God has purchased us from sin's eternal penalty. God has purchased us as followers of Jesus from sin's present power He purchased us by putting a holy sacrifice on a cross in Jerusalem. Jesus was the substitution. He took our debt. He assumed our penalty. And as a result, we have received both a full pardon and we've been set free. That's really a picture of plentiful redemption, meaning abundant It's more than enough. It's certainly more than we deserve. It doesn't just satisfy our debt. It ushers us into God's presence forever. It ushers us into hope. We'll be with the Lord forever. It's both his mercy, not receiving the penalty that we deserve, and it's his grace, receiving all the benefits that we don't deserve. And so please remember with me, it's not leniency. A holy standard was satisfied by a holy, costly sacrifice, but it all began and it all flowed from God's great character. It was God's will for you to be redeemed. It was God's plan. He designed the means for you to be redeemed. He alone had the power and the authority to execute it because it was his holiness that had been uh, offended. He was the only one who could accept a substitution. 
God desired it, God planned it, God promised it, and for those of us who live on this side of the cross, God has already done it. He has already done it, and he's done it abundantly. Abundantly, this is the hope of the world, and it flows from God's good character. Matthew Henry um, succinctly describes this section of the psalm with these short words, mercy and redemption, enough for me, enough for you, enough for each, enough for all. That's abundant redemption, isn't it? Romans 10, 11 says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's abundant and plentiful. The psalmist ends with a hopeful look at the future. God will redeem Israel from all his sins. He's not telling God something God doesn't know. He's simply proclaiming his belief in God. God, I know your word. I know your character. I believe you will do what you have said. This psalm began with the psalmist expressing his own need for mercy and forgiveness, and he ends declaring his confident hope that God will redeem and forgive Israel. And we have the benefit of knowing historically and spiritually how that happened. You know, the New Testament begins, the very first book in the very first chapter in Matthew 1, the angel of God comes to Joseph and says, Mary's going to bear a son, and you will name him Jesus because he will redeem his people from their sins. Zechariah said the exact same thing, anticipating the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist. He said that God has visited and redeemed his people. God honors his promises. So if you have a living hope, it's a hope that is proclaimed. It's a hope that invites others to find mercy and forgiveness in God. You proclaim it by communicating his mercy and his redemption that's available to all abundantly through Jesus. You know, I am comforted that God understands human hope is fragile and disappointed hope harms our soul. God knows how that crushes our spirit. He knows and he has given you an anchor that you can attach your hope to so that you don't experience those disappointments. And it's his word and his promise and his steadfast, faithful character ensures that your hope will not be disappointed. So if you're sitting out there today and you're realizing, I have attached my hope to some of the wrong things. I'm, I've attached my hope to being healed of a disease or having my loved one made whole or having a relationship restored. I know you're doing the hard process right now of deciding you have to detach your hope from that. And I know that's a painful thing and maybe that's a scary thing. And I don't want you to be afraid. Um, I want you to be encouraged. God has good plans for you. God doesn't want a big gaping void in your life where you've released hope in worldly things. He wants to fill that with hope in certain things that he's already promised. So as we leave today, I want to remind you of your hope. I want to remind you of the promises of God. God has promised to forgive your sins, to remove them from you completely and forever the moment you accept Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. God has promised to put his Holy Spirit down in your soul, and that spirit will help you know him, hear him, understand him, obey him, 
Love him more. The Spirit will guide your life in wisdom and truth and obedience. God has promised that he hears your prayers, and not just that, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit are praying with you. They're intervening for you. God sees, he knows, he hears, he responds, he acts. God has promised that you have a beautiful, eternal inheritance. He has secured it for you already. He is currently guarding it and protecting it for you until the day we will all experience it. God has promised that one day, Jesus will come back. One day, Jesus and his kingdom will reign. There will be no tears, no crying, no depths of sin, no evil, no darkness. He will be our light, and we will be with the Lord forever. This is God's word and his promise to you. This is your hope. Let's pray. God, we're overwhelmed by your goodness to us. We are overwhelmed by your mercy. And all we can do is thank you and and give you back the lives that you have purchased. So we praise you for who you are. We praise you for your holiness, your justice, your mercy, your forgiveness, your steadfast love, and your redemption. We pray that you would help us to live lives of hope, to proclaim hope, to direct the world's attention back to you and your beautiful, beautiful character. This is our desire for your glory and honor and praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.